As a child, Margaret Dillaway was interested in art, but found it too expensive a hobby to pursue. So instead, she chose writing because it required fewer supplies. Well, it was a smart choice. In high school, she took creative writing classes in CalArts Summer Session and won the National Council of Teachers of English Writing Award. In college, Margaret rediscovered drawing and chose art for her major. But with no work prospects in that field after graduation, she took jobs at two different newspapers in Washington State. She began as a temp in the classifieds department and eventually worked her way up to contributing editor. Margaret's first novel, How to Be an American Housewife, was published in 2011. Focusing on an American woman who reconnects with her Japanese roots, the book was inspired by Margaret's own experiences with her Japanese mother. Her newest book, The Care and Handling of Roses with Thorns, was released at the beginning of August 2012. We'll talk to Margaret about writing from personal experience, how reporting for newspapers has helped her fiction, and whether handling bacon is better or worse than getting a root canal, as Margaret Dillaway joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Krista Bean, and today we're welcoming to the show our author, Margaret Dillaway. Thank you for joining us today, Margaret. Thank you for having me. So we actually met a few weeks ago at the uh, ALA conference in Anaheim, and you were promoting your newest book, The Care and Handling of Roses with Thorns. Um, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about what that book is about? Sure. It is about an amateur rose breeder named Galilee Garner who is also a teacher, and she is struggling with kidney dialysis. She has kidney failure, and she has to go to dialysis every other day. And her main goal is to create this new breed of rose called the Holtenia and get it out into the marketplace. Well, her life is suddenly thrown upside down when her estranged sister Becky sends her daughter Riley to live with Gal, and she has to bring down their life and start letting people into it and everything changes. So now how, because you base this book on your, not not base the story exactly, but your um, huh? your sister-in-law actually had a lot of these same health problems. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. My sister-in-law who passed away last Christmas actually had three kidney transplants. Mm-hmm. So she was short as a result of the childhood disease that, that did it. It was a defect. It was called reflux. And uh, so she told me all about her struggles, and I heard quite a bit about her struggles throughout her whole life. But she still managed to hold a full-time job and get a master's degree and do all this volunteer work. And she was just a really determined person. So she offered me a lot of the information about the medical issues that Gal faces. But there's also a certain way that the family is changed when a a child in the family has a major disease. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the other kids feel like they don't get as much attention or they're not as loved. And I think that's what happened to Gal's sister, and that's why they're not close anymore. Oh, I see. Yeah, Yeah, that's the whole, yeah, you don't really think about that when somebody in the family is having a a crisis. You don't, you you know, you tend to forget about everyone else in the family. (laughs) Yeah, I was actually looking at this art display by kids who were siblings of kids who had major diseases. And there was this display by this little boy whose brother had the same kind of kidney disease. And he said, I feel like my parents love my brother more. 
because I spend all this time with him. And that kind of made me think about my husband's family and all the ways that this disease can affect people and how the parents don't really just love this other kid more. This is what they have to spend all this time at the hospital. Mm -hmm. There's no choice. Yeah. And I think especially as a a kid is not going to fully understand that, you know, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think also having the character have this disease made it kind of explain why she is so set in her ways and so stubborn because she has to have a really strong ego mm-hmm. to get over this disease and to do all the things she needs to do. And her parents have kind of raised her with this belief that she can do whatever she wants and she's always right because they're also they were also always afraid that she was going to die and they mm-hmm. wanted to give her everything that she wanted. Ah. So that's why the character is kind of a little bit difficult <laughs> in the beginning. Uh, she's kind of a, a curmudgeon, but she really believes that she is right and she wants to do the best thing for everybody. Now, how much other research besides talking to your sister-in-law, both on the medical side and then the whole um, rose breeding world, what kind of research well, did you have to do for that? Well, I talked to a rose breeder named Jim Stahl, who lives in Bakersfield. And he suggested that I concentrate on the Holthemia rose. It's the open rose, and it has a red heart or a splotch in the middle. Mm-hmm. And he actually got the first Holthemia out on the market this year. They've been trying to get a commercial breed of it out for 200 years. Oh, my gosh. They've been working on it forever, yeah. Oh, it has wow. all these attributes before people will buy it. Mm-hmm. It has to rebloom, and it has to be disease-resistant this and that, and, and of course, be beautiful. So he answered a lot of my questions. He's written a lot of essays about rose breeding that are just available on his website, <laughs> and he was just very, very helpful. Well, and I, I also think... did other research, too, as well as talking to Jim. Well, that's always interesting when you can pick up a book about something. I mean, I think this is a perfect example of something that, you know, I could pick this book up, and I know nothing whatsoever about rose breeding and it just introduces you to a whole world and a whole, um, you know, subculture of people that are, are, you know, very into a particular thing that you might not have ever really given much thought to. It's like, Oh, you realize how big, big a place the world really is when you can Uh get those little glimpses into, into worlds like that. Yeah. And I went to a rose society meeting here in San Diego and I went on rose boards on the internet and I found out that a lot of people who engage in rose breeding are retired scientists and engineers and people who are very methodical enjoy uh, enjoy that kind of work that takes place over a long period of time. Yeah, I guess it does take a lot of patience for something like that. Yeah. Now, both um, in, in this book and then also in your first book, How to Be an American Housewife, um, they, they both were written with a lot of... Um, a lot of your own personal history was sort of interwoven in the story. Um, is it? Do you find it easier or more difficult to write a story that that hits close to home like that? Well, I think it's more difficult to write a story like that because it, you're you're fictionalizing it. You're trying to find out the truth of what your heart is telling you, and uh, not trying to just make it like a, a, a memoir. Mm-hmm. But I think all stories that I write have elements of myself. I have, I'm, I've worked on a book I just finished and sent it to my agent. 
And I know that all the male characters have said things that my husband has said at one time or the other, <laughs> even though all the characters are totally different. And only mm-hmm. he would recognize those things, but they're they're always finding their way in there. And I I put elements of myself into everybody, no matter who I'm writing. Do you ever find when you're when you're writing a character, especially one where you feel like the real person is is encroaching too much on the character? Do you ever have to sort of edit? some of that out or or do you just sort of embrace that and just use it to flush the character out more uh so far i have embraced it and i for gal she wasn't exactly like my sister-in-law my sister-in-law wasn't quite as uh, harsh (laughs) (laughs) and you know the family dynamics weren't exactly the same all this stuff didn't happen but i yeah i i pretty much go with it and I, I I don't try to dial myself back or, or anything. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, it's got to be interesting because I find, I find myself kind of doing the same thing, just even just the little quirks and little idiosyncrasies and like you're yeah. saying, just particular things that your husband has said in, yeah. even in real life, you know, it's easy to overlook those things, but then when you just pluck them out and put it into a piece of writing, it really can give it a lot of character and depth and color that, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, now, when um, after you graduated from college, you wrote for two newspapers. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you did for the newspapers and if that work and that experience has helped your fiction writing career at all. Sure. Well, after I finished college, I met my husband, who was an Army Ranger stationed at Fort Lewis, and I moved up there. And one of my my first job was a temp job in the classified department of this weekly newspaper. And I saw that they got this fax in, and I was the one getting the faxes. And it was to write on a C-141. So I asked the editor if I could do it as a freelancer, and he said, sure, and take some pictures. So I started freelancing for them on the side. And then when an opening came up, I became the contributing editor. Oh, so I wrote all these stories about military life and uh, features about the theater scene and I did theater reviews and all kinds of stuff like that, all, all these different things. And it just it helped me be a good researcher mm-hmm. and not be shy about calling people up and asking them for information <laughs> and, uh, you know, checking my facts and just re- really being on top of deadline because I really like to turn my work in on time. I'm kind of <laughs> obsessive about it. I think it's so helpful when you have when you have deadlines and yeah. you're used to that, yeah. Um, and then, can you tell us a little bit about how you got your first agent? Well, I met my first agent at the SDSU Writers Conference here in San Diego, mm-hmm. and for that, when you sign up, you can also sign up to have your work read by some agents and meet with an agent for like ten minutes. And she read the first chapter of a book. And laughed and asked me to send the asked me to send her the last. So I did, and she became the agent. That book never sold. Ah. Uh-huh. So what happened was I started working on how to be an American housewife. It was totally different than it is now, but she wasn't really feeling it as much. So we went our separate ways, mm-hmm. and I found a new agent. The process it took probably another year and a half or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I rewrote the, I had to finish the book and rewrote it a couple times. And 
and uh, I had had a baby in the middle. <laughs> so uh, there was a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah, that minor but, distraction. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, because yeah, I, I remember. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, oh no. When my, oh, when my agent, my new agent called to tell me she wanted to, to represent me, uh, my my little girl who, who was just being potty trained. I guess she wasn't. She took off her diaper and peed in the middle of the carpet while this agent from New York was talking to me. <laughs> I was trying to uh, to listen to her, and I was watching my daughter pee all over the place. It's <laughs> oh. a red letter day, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I think a lot of people um, sort of naturally assume once you land an agent, then you're set, and that's your agent until, you know, your career ends or, you know, it's your agent on and on. But, you know, I think um, yeah. a lot of people have, you know, they, they switch up those relationships more often, I think, than than people might expect. Yeah, I, I have known a lot of writers who have switched agents. I'm on my, my third agent now, mm-hmm. actually. So, I, but I, it's not uncommon at all. And, I, yeah, before I, I got an agent, I thought, oh, once you have an agent, you're set, and you're going to get a big book deal and all this stuff, because that's all you really hear about, but you don't hear about all the people who uh, have to work out a little bit longer yeah. and, and have all these other tries. Yeah, because also when you have, you finished your manuscript and you send it out, and it's such a big deal to get an agent to begin with, and you think, yeah. you know, all right, now I'm on my way to being a bestseller, not even thinking about just because you have an agent doesn't mean you're going to sell just, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's um sort of eye opening when you think of how, you know, what a tiny, tiny percentage of books get represented of those get published and of those become bestsellers. <laughs> yeah. Kind of humbling to think about. <laughs> I try not to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> Now, um, as I mentioned before, uh, we met while you were promoting your book at the ALA conference. Um, you have a great website, and you have a blog, and, and you know, you're really a good, uh, have a strong presence online. How important it, is it, do you think, for writers today to do that sort of self-promotion? Well, it's of utmost importance. You can't always be assured that your publisher is going to do that much. My publisher have done quite a bit for me. They have a great publicity team. Mm-hmm. But depending on your circumstances, you might have to undertake your own marketing campaign. And a big part of that now is, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all that kind of stuff, having a blog presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might be asked to do a blog tour or have to schedule one yourself. I know writers have done that. Mm-hmm. and do giveaways and, you know, just interact with your fans and try to build up your, your readership and also network with other writers. That's mm-hmm. a very important part of it because people, other writers tend to help you out and you help them out. So it's a, it's a good, strong community. And talk just a little bit about the blog tour because obviously that's sort of uh-huh. a, a newer sort of promotional tool now that blogs are so popular? Oh, yeah. Well, you can either pay for that yourself, like if your publisher won't do it, or your publisher will will pay for you to have a blog tour. And they just set up these dates where your book will be featured on different book blogs. Oh, okay. Uh, And then 
they review it and talk about it and tweet about it and all that kind of stuff. Oh, that's great. And Yeah, and they're not required to give you a good review or anything because I've had some um, people who didn't like my yeah. book who were on the blog tour. Like, but, oh, I shouldn't have contacted them. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's fine. Yeah, nobody's paid to give a good opinion or anything like that. <laughs> Very on the up and up. Yeah, now that you mention it, what do you do if you if you read a bad review? I mean, I'm I'm sure it's you know, just in the the little bit of of writing I've done just even just handing it off to a beta reader and they have critiques and just part of you thinking, you know, okay, it's like, okay, this is constructive criticism, this is good, but then a little part of you's like, oh shoot, why didn't you like all of it? You know, how how do you handle that when you yeah. get unfavorable reviews? Well, I yeah, I think it's different if somebody's reading it and you're still working on it, because you can change it. But there's some people who are like, oh, I wanted How to Be an American Half-Life to be about contemporary Japan and these issues, and it wasn't, so I hated it. And like, well, that one should judge it on what the book is about rather than what you wanted it to be, or write your own book or, or something. So yeah. it's kind of, reviews like that are a little bit frustrating. It's just like, oh, whatever. And the other thing... I remember about bad reviews, which is easier said than done, is that everybody on the internet is a critic now, whether or not they're they have good taste, in my opinion, or uh, or they're they're getting a really good critical review. And and the- so so you can have people saying totally off the wall things that have you know just because they looked at your picture and they didn't like you or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't really take that too seriously yeah Um, and and you also have to remember that everybody likes different things like I don't like the same movies as my friends like all the time Mm -hmm. when I when I go to my own personal book club with my friends we disagree about the book anyway so it's I think of it more like that like if everybody has their own opinion and it's great when you're on the other side of it and you can be in a discussion group and have, you know, a, a colorful discussion about what was good and what was bad. But I'm, I'm sure if it's actually your book, you prefer the conversation to be a little more one-sided. <laughs> well, and also the uh, yeah. the uh, anonymity of the Internet. You know, people would say things that they would mm-hmm. never say under their own names. Of course, they'd never say to your face and they just, yeah. you know, yeah. So, it's, yeah, it can definitely be harsh, I think. Yeah. And now you, um, you also like participating in book clubs. Talk a little bit about that. Well, if a book club emails me, uh, I will do my best to Skype with them, and that's just a, a fun thing to do. They, I just get to talk to a bunch of book clubs that way. And they're usually a group of ladies somewhere who are having a bunch of wine at the time, <laughs> and uh, they ask me questions about my book. That's great. And and it's it seems like a um I I feel like saying ever since the Oprah Book Club thing took off, you know, 10 or 15 mm-hmm. years ago, um it seems like books have just I'm sorry, book clubs have just become more prominent. You know, just like everybody, you know, I've talked to a lot of people like, "Oh, my book club, my book club, my book club." Um do do you feel that that like it's more of a a little bit more recent thing or well, I've been involved in my mom's group at club for like six years, I think. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't, I don't know how recent it is. I guess I wasn't really aware of them, as you said, before Oprah came mm-hmm. around. Or nobody I knew, nobody I knew had one. And yeah. then all of a sudden, there were like two or three within my social group. Mm-hmm. So I started going. But I think they're a really great tool to uh, market your book to and to have great discussions with your friends mm-hmm. about the book. Yeah, and if, if a, I was saying if a book group picks up your book, that's automatically 10 sales right there instead of one. So. <laughs> yeah. So um, what's up next for you? What are you working on? Well, I just finished a draft of a manuscript about a samurai woman named Tamela Gozen. My dad just told me recently, well, the past year, that my mom was part of a samurai family which I'd never known. Oh, so interesting. So I was Googling, yeah, I was Googling female samurai, and I found Tamori Gozen, and I, and I found out that she was part of a clan called the Minamoto clan, which is a precursor of my mom's family. Mm-hmm. So she might have been in my family tree if she were a real person. But she was part of this great story uh, about this war called the Genpei War in Japan in the, the late 12th century. Mm-hmm. And she was a concubine of this general who had all this controversy surrounding him. And his father's land was taken from them by his uncle, and he had to be spared away as a baby. And there's just all these, these Shakespearean double crosses and intrigue. So uh, a lot of the story <laughs> is historical about that. And then the contemporary part that I did is about these two sisters whose mother was Japanese and has died in the last year. They're going through her things. They don't know much about their mother. And the mm-hmm. sisters have a really strange relationship. And they find these drawings of a samurai woman and a story written in Japanese on the back. And they say, why does our mother have this story about this powerful warrior woman? And what, what is it about? So they get translated. And the story kind of inspires them in their own lives. And through working on this story and sorting through their mother's things, they're, they're brought together. That's really interesting. And, and how much of the samurai woman's story, is, is any of that based in historical fact, or is it just like yeah. folklore? Well, it's, it's funny. Well, there's this one text where she's mentioned. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it. There's no gravestone for her. There's, they don't know. Some people say she went off with one guy. Some people say she went to uh, a convent. But there would have been records in the convent of her. So mm-hmm. some historians say she was fictional, and some people say she was real. But there are statues of her. She's big in Japan. And the, the general and everybody else were definitely real. And some people say that she was created to discredit uh the, the general she was with, whose name was Yoshinaka. Oh. They, they didn't like him, and he tried to take over his, his cousin's clan. Oh, I see. And, and she was supposed to be this great woman warrior, very beautiful. She was very skilled with a bow and arrow and a sword. She fought better than any of the men. Mm-hmm. And she was supposed to be his most trusted soldier. Oh, wow. Who went to war with him and all these helped him in all these battles. Was that at all common for women to, or was she just sort of this black sheep Joan of Arc sort of person? Well, I, yeah, 
women during that time were trained with certain uh, weapons to defend their home. Mm -hmm. So they didn't go into battle, but they definitely could defend themselves if they had to. Okay. And I think she was just an anomaly. So I I treated her as a real person, and mm-hmm. I tried to have all these historical details be a realist. But uh, but yeah, I don't I don't know if she was real. And I, I I she has this whole family story, and she was a concubine, like a lover of Yoshinaka. But he had a legal wife, so the legal wife who whose name is Yamabuki is also in the story and has her own. A more minor part, but it's an important part because they would have been friends, really, in real life, and that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. That yeah, he would be the lover of this guy, but it was different back then. So <laughs> that that was definitely challenging to try to make this story about a woman who's a concubine who went around, you know, cutting people's heads off, relatable <laughs> to contemporary women. Yeah, it sounds so interesting. And again, you know, it's just this world that you're, you know, I think a lot of people aren't familiar with and you get this glimpse into just how people lived. And yeah, it's just so yeah. fascinating. Sounds really yeah, interesting. Yeah, I got really into it. It's <laughs> really long. Too. I think it's like 557 pages or something. Oh, like yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it'll stay that long. But yeah, you know, they'll be saying, oh, cut that down. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're almost out of time here. Um, we have this little segment we do at the end of each interview called Rapid Fire, and it's five questions that are either or. So I'll just say, you know, black or white, and you just choose whichever one you prefer. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, Hawaii or California? California. Handling bacon or getting a root canal? <laughs> <laughs> getting a root canal. <laughs> I was curious about that. Wow. Okay. Um Roses, red or white? White. High school Japanese or high school Spanish? Japanese. And better housewife, June Cleaver or Lucy Ricardo? Lucy Ricardo. (laughs) (laughs) That was the first thing that came to mind. Oh, (laughs) gotta love Lucy. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Margaret. Oh, thanks for having me. You can find out more about Margaret and her books on her website at margaretdilloway.com. And if you have any questions on the craft or business of writing, send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. And there's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening. 